Well, we're looking at the entire story of the Bible. We're looking at at God's story from the very beginning to the very end. And what you're going to find out is that the beginning mirrors the end. Or I should say the end mirrors the beginning. That, That God's plan through all of this is to restore everything back to the way it was in the beginning. And if if you remember with me in the beginning, who? God. In the beginning, God. And in the beginning, God created. He created all things, heaven and earth, everything visible, everything invisible. He created all of it, and he did it simply with a word. He spoke it, and it was. And after everything he created, he declared it good. And in fact, when he finished all of it, he declared it very good. He just sat back, rested for a day, and looked at his creation and declared it to be very good. And in that very good creation, there was perfect harmony. Uh, there was no sin. There was nothing that was messed up. There, there, there was perfect relationship between Adam and Eve and God and between Adam and Eve and creation and between Adam and Eve. And there was perfect harmony and perfect relationship. No misunderstandings, nothing to get in the way. Yet if you and I look around, we look at our lives and we look at the world and we recognize, boy, that's not the case anymore. When I look around and I look at life, I recognize things that are really messed up. When I look at myself, I see things that are really messed up. And last week we saw that all of this was the result of our disobedience. Adam and Eve are presented, we're going to read it again this morning, but they're presented with a lie from the enemy. And the problem is they believe the lie and they take the fruit and they eat of it and they sin. And now because of their disobedience, what we'll see this morning is there's incredible consequence for their sin. And we're in the midst of really the darkest part of the story where we've disobeyed, we've sinned against God, we've turned away and we're facing our sin. And today won't be a fun message. I'll just be honest with you. It'll be a hard one. It'll be hard to preach. It'll be hard to hear, but it's a needed one because it's true. And if you don't get this part of the story, you don't really understand the story and you don't understand God's grace. The truth is there's consequences for our actions and for our sin. And today the story takes a dark turn as those consequences begin to hit home. So let me pray. And then we'll be in Genesis chapter 3 this morning. Let me pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. uh, Because without him, we're all left to face uh, eternal consequence for our sin on our own. Without his work on the cross, the one that you promise, even in the text we see this morning from the very beginning, without him, we have no hope. I have no hope. And we're stuck in our sin. And we're stuck in the ways that we're messed up. But thankfully, you provide a way out. Yet if we don't look at the ways we're messed up, if we don't look at the consequence of our sin, then we really fail to grasp the enormity of your grace. So show us the consequence, but also show us your grace today. I pray. I pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects, who uh, we'll see this morning began all of this with a lie. And uh, help us instead not to believe his lies, but to believe the truth. Uh, He would love to accuse us and to tempt us and to draw us away from your grace. But instead, help us to, uh, to acknowledge what's true, which is that your grace to us is unending. So teach us this morning, Father, and change us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Genesis chapter 3. By the way, if you're coming in a little late, uh, we talked earlier, it's a little warm in here today, you know? And so uh, we're working on it, just so you know, but maybe fan your neighbor if they fall asleep, elbow them. You know, if you need to spread out a little bit so you're not sticking to them, that's okay too. I'm going to be going to India next month, so maybe they're just prepping me for the heat. It'll be good. Genesis chapter 3, though, let's read. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Where are you? And he said, I I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, well, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. It is the serpent. The serpent deceived me. And I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you among all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You will bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I'll surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And then to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and taste Take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, all of this started. It all started with a lie. All of it did. The enemy lied to them. Didn't he? Did you see that? Look back at 
verses 1 through 4 in chapter 3. The serpent, he was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And then she goes on, she goes, no, he didn't say that. He said we could eat of all the trees, just not one, or we'll die. And he said, you won't die? He lies. You won't die? Surely you won't die. He contradicts exactly what God has said. He's trying to unravel what God has put forth. And sadly, he succeeds in part, but not forever. We'll find out. But in the moment, he does. And the problem wasn't so much just that he had lied to them. It's that they believed it. And the problem is when we believe a lie, you know what we do next? We act on it. First, we believe a lie and then we act on it. And that's what they did. See, here's, here was the truth. God had said in Genesis two fifteen through 17, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, he commanded Adam saying, you, shall, you may eat of every tree in the garden, every tree. I told you that the garden wasn't like the garden in your backyard, right? It's like Yellowstone. It's like this huge, huge area. Tons of trees, tons of beauty, gorgeous. And you can have any tree in the garden to eat that you want, God says. Except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. God's command wasn't restrictive, right? It it, it gave him incredible freedom. There was only one rule that he had. Yet here's the lie. I mean, God said, if you eat of it, you'll die. Here's the lie in chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. Now, when the serpent was more crafty, he said to the woman, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? See, one of the things that's subtle about his lies is he takes truth and he mixes it in with his lie. He takes truth and half-truths and he mixes them in so that sometimes it's hard to determine. Well, that sounds true. I mean, God talked about eating, didn't he? And he talked about dying if we ate. But Eve refutes him. She says, God didn't say that. He said, if you eat of this tree, you'll die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Then sometimes he just flat out lies. God didn't say that. Come on. He just wants to spoil your fun. He really didn't say that. You know what? God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And then you'll be like him. You'll know good and evil, the enemy says. He's subtle. He mixes some truth and half-truth in with the lie. And he does the same thing with us. Again, let's look at this. The true thing was God spoke to them about eating, right? Satan mentions that, but that's only partly true because his falsehood is you can't eat from any tree. But the truth is God said they could eat from any tree, just not one. And he also includes some truth in his lie. He said, did God say that, that you would die? It's true, but Satan says, no, you won't die. He flat out contradicts what's true. Then he says, you will surely not die. Your your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, implying that they're not like him already. Because in Genesis chapter one, we find out they were actually created in his image, in his likeness. And because they were like him, they're supposed to live out of that identity. And he says, no, if you do this, then you'll be like God. Achieve your identity. Do enough good so people will love you. Do enough right things so nobody... So God will love you, but that's just false. You can never do enough. 
Not only this, but he implies that they're not going to die. Yet the truth of the matter is sin yields death. It's a half-truth, too, because he says your eyes will be opened. And the truth is their eyes would be opened, but they would know good and evil, not in the way that he implies they would know it, like in a way that they, they're in charge of it. But they'll know it in a way like you know the stove is hot when you burn your finger. They'll know it from experience, and it won't be good. And that's how the enemy lies to them. And again, the problem isn't the lie. The problem is they believed it. And that once they believed it, they acted on it. Look at verse 6 and 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that it was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Again, I've said it before. I'll keep saying it. Guys, you're not off the hook because Eve ate first. He was standing right there and like a coward did nothing. He was right there. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. The truth is the same today. Our actions reveal what we believe to be true. And when we believe the lie, we act on it. It's like, you know, I mean, if, if a high school girl thinks she's unlovely, she believes that about herself. Usually she's going to act on it in a way that either she lives that identity out or she tries to do something to achieve loveliness in a way that just is totally wrong. And you see it all over the place, right? And I could go on with tons of examples. Psychologists call it high self-esteem, low self-esteem. And, and they're right in part. But they're only partly right if, if they fail to recognize that all of this stems back to the lie of the enemy. That's the root of it. The root of it is the lie in the garden. And the only way to confront the lie is with the truth. Because when I believe the lie, I act upon it and it results in consequences. And that's where we're headed this morning is looking at the consequence of sin. See, cause and effect is as much a spiritual relationship as it is a physical one. It is. I mean, think about cause and effect, right? If I swing the hammer and I strike a nail squarely on its head, that's the cause. What's going to happen? The nail will get driven into the wood. There's the effect. If I choose to touch a hot stove, there's the cause. What's going to happen? My finger's going to get burnt. There's the effect. And if I believe the lie, that's the cause. I'm going to act upon it. That's the effect. And if I act upon it, there's the cause. The effect is consequence of sin. When I act upon it, it enacts the consequences. And today we're going to talk about the consequences enacted by Adam and Eve's sin and by your and my sin. It's not just them, it's us. So let's look at what the text says about the consequences of sin. Number one, they would experience spiritual and physical death. They would experience spiritual and physical death. Death is a result of sin. It is. And it's the most obvious and devastating consequence of sin. If you've ever lost someone you loved, if you've ever been in the midst of death, you you know how awful that is. And ultimately, it's a consequence of our sin because God says, when you eat of the tree, you'll surely die. And Paul tells us in Romans that the wages of sin, the thing we earn for sin, is death. But note, there's two different types of death mentioned here. The first one, physical, which I'm talking about. 
or actually the second in our list, but it's the first one we experience here. God told Adam and Eve that they could eat of any tree in the garden, but if they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the midst, they would surely die. Well, look how Paul sums this up in Romans chapter 3. As it's written, no one's righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Everyone is turned aside. And together, they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. You open your mouth and you sin, is what he's saying. Anybody relate to that one? They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. In other words, they're like the serpent in the garden. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery. All the way of peace they've not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. He's speaking of all of us here. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Here's what he says in verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, through your works, you'll never do enough good to be right with God. Never. I don't care how many times you help an old lady cross the street. I don't care how many times you give to the poor. I don't care how many times you tell your spouse you love them. You'll never do enough good to be right with God. Never. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. But verse 21 of chapter 3 in Romans, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, they, they point to this manifestation. And the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Do you want to be made right with God? That's what righteousness is. It's, it's rightness. It's through faith in Jesus Christ for anyone who would believe. It has nothing to do with your actions. It has to do with your heart. Do you believe? Have you trusted him? For everyone has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. And all are justified in the same way, just like everybody sinned. Everyone is justified by his grace through redemption that's in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. In other words, to take our wrath, and he's to be received by faith. The only way this is fixed is through faith. And the truth is, Paul says later in Romans chapter 6, But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. He could have spoke that to Eve, couldn't he? Hey, Eve, hey, Adam, what, what fruit, that, that fruit you were grabbing off the tree? At the time, what fruit do you have now? You're ashamed of it, aren't you? And the truth is the end of that fruit, picking that fruit is death. But now, but now because of Jesus, you've been set free from sin. You've become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The big consequence of Adam and Eve's sin is death. First physical death, but there's also spiritual death that the Bible speaks of, which is just as awful, much more awful, quite frankly. The Bible speaks of two deaths, physical and spiritual. It mentions it mostly in Revelation in the end. Revelation 20 
Right, right away in Revelation 2, verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. He speaks of a second death. In chapter 20, verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. But they'll be priests of God and of Christ and they'll reign with him a thousand years. What is the second death he's speaking of? Later in chapter 20, verse 10, and the devil who had deceived them, earlier in Revelation, he calls him that old serpent from of old, the one in the garden. The devil who had deceived them, he was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Hell is created ultimately for Satan. He's punished there first, and then we'll see anyone who fails to trust Jesus. And it's not a temporary thing. It's forever and ever. Verse 11 of chapter 20 in Revelation. Then I saw a great white throne and him who is seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. You probably didn't see that flannel graph of Jesus growing up, did you? Sitting on a white throne where all darkness flees from him. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. The second death is eternity in hell. It's a spiritual death. And what the Bible teaches is all of us are born once, right? You're born, I mean, would you agree? If you're sitting here, you were born at one point. I hope you agree with that. If not, you had a bad education growing up. You were born, right? The other truth is all of us will die. Everybody has one, one birth and one death. The key is you get one more of one of each of them. You get either one more birth or one more death. And if you're born again, you're born twice, you only die once because you'll be resurrected to live forever. And as, the, as Revelation said, the second death has no power over you. But if you're only born once, you don't die once, you die twice. And you spend eternity under God's wrath for your sin. What you need to know is Jesus endured for you on the cross. He took the punch. That's what propitiation means. Propitiation. He took the punch of God's wrath for you and for me. And if I believe, I'm, it's like I'm born again, Jesus says. I'm brand new. Born twice, die once. Born once, die twice. Be born again. Trust Jesus. So the first consequence is spiritual and physical death. The second consequence that we see is that they would both desire to hide from God due to their guilt, fear, and shame. The second consequence, they would both desire to hide from God. One of the things that we do in our sin, every one of us, is we hide. And ultimately, we hide from God. Chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Then the, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the garden, among the trees of the garden. When we sin, we hide, every one of us. 
If you need an example, look at your kids, right? There's a story told, I read a story of a pastor this week. He was talking about his kids and he has a little boy and a little girl and the little boy is about two years old and all of a sudden he heard, heard crying. He just heard screaming coming from his room. So he went to find him and when he got in there, he also found his four-year-old daughter there. And he said, what happened? And she said, he hit his head, dad. And he looked and he noticed a plastic bat laying on the ground. And he said, really, what did he hit his head on? And she said, the bat. He goes, really? She goes, yeah, I was holding it. <laughs> but it wasn't her fault. It was the bat. I, mean, I can tell you the story of my nephew. We were up there last, last fall. And we got, he got this bat at the Twins game. And he swung. And he swung around and clocked himself in the head. The first thing he did was curse out the bat. But we do that. We hide from our responsibility, don't we? And we shift the blame onto something or someone else. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. In addition to hiding, they blame shift. See, the Lord called to the man and he said, where are you? By the way, notice that. Notice that. We'll come back to it. God doesn't leave him in his sin. God had every right. He said, if you sin, you'll die. You'll surely die. And he could have left him where he was and said, I'm done. Fine. But he doesn't. What's he do? He initiates it. He comes looking for him. Don't miss that. God says, where are you? The man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, well, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And you know what he does next? That woman you made, she gave me the fruit. Wasn't my fault. Wasn't my fault. It was her fault. He shifted the blame. He blamed it on the bat. I hit my head on the bat. I don't know what the bat was doing. The reason we make excuses because of sin is it's just, it's a way that we hide. And as we all know, excuses, they're like rear ends, right? We all have them and they usually stink. (laughs) And excuses are worthless before God because we're all responsible for our sin. Every one of us are. Look at Adam and Eve's response. The man said, the woman whom you gave me, whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. So I ate it. And look, the woman was the same. He goes to Eve. He says to the woman, what what is it that you've done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And then God begins spelling out additional consequences. They hide in their guilt. They hide in their fear. They hide in their shame. He begins with Satan. He says, the Lord, it says, verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field on your belly, you will go. And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman. Ladies, you afraid of snakes? There you go. And between, there's more to it than that though. He's speaking ultimately of between him and Israel and between God's plan to send a savior. Between your offspring, in other words, and her offspring, he'll bruise your head. In other words, he'll, he'll, he'll give the defining blow, but you'll only bruise his heel. That's the first promise God makes that I'm going to fix this. Theologically, that verse 315 is called the proto-evangelium, which just means first gospel. 
right away, immediately, God promises, hey, I'm going to fix this. And after Satan, then God turns to Eve. So our third consequence, we see Eve gets addressed by God. And we find out that Eve would experience pain in her childbearing to birth her family. One consequence of sin for Eve is pain in childbearing. Ladies, is it painful? Don't tell my wife. (laughs) But actually, we were talking the other day and Hannah said, man, I'm hurting in parts I didn't know I had. That's a consequence of the fall, isn't it? Joking around, but it's true. It's true. It's because of sin. To the woman, he said, I'll surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he'll rule, he shall rule over you. That's another one we're going to see here in a moment. But then he moves on to Adam, and he dishes out pain in another type of labor for Adam. Number four, Adam would experience pain in his physical labor to sustain his family. He had labor before this. He had to do physical labor before this. But before this, there was no pain in it. There, it was hard work, but it was good. And it was enjoyable. And when he planted a seed, it grew. And no weeds choked it out. He said to Adam, verse 17, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. All of creation, by the way, we could mention that as a consequence of sin. All of creation gets messed up. And we'll actually see it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, and for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. In other words, and you're going to die. But Adam would experience physical, would experience pain in his physical labor to sustain his family. Number five, they would both desire to dominate and to rule over each other. You ever have fights in your marriage or see it in your family? Like, what? What are you talking about? Not, not our family. We didn't have fights. It's a result of sin. It's a consequence. Verse 16 of chapter 3 in Genesis. The woman, to the woman he said, after he says, I'll surely multiply your pain in childbearing, he says, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. It's a result of sin that there's enmity in marriages. And that there's a misunderstanding of of the ways God's created us as equal but different between men and women. And a misunderstanding of sexuality itself because of sin. And sometimes it's, it's our overt sin. We sin against one another. But other times it's just a reality of the fact that we're sinful. And that men, instead of being the head of your home in a really gracious way that loves your wife and loves your kids and leads them like God does, loves them like Jesus does his church, sometimes you rule over her in a way that's flat out ungodly. And ladies, 
your desire shall be for your husband. In other words, to be over him. Sometimes, instead of a desire to serve and to love and to care the way God's put it in your heart to do, there's a desire that springs up to, to be in charge. Not to work together with your husband, but to rule over him, to have desire over him. And that's just as wrong. The truth is God made us different and he made us equal. He made us different so that in relationship we'd love one another equally and work together. And that the man by having greater responsibility isn't to lord it over his wife, but he's to be her servant, just like Jesus is the servant of the church. But when that fails, it's a result of our sin and it goes back to the very beginning. The next thing God does, number six, is they were both cast out of the garden. After dealing with the consequences for their sin and addressing each one, God throws them out of paradise. And they're cast out. Look, verse 23 and 24. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim. And a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. We taught through this in my class that I've been teaching at Grace. One of the questions was, why does, why does God guard them from going back in to eat of the tree of life? Like, I, I, what, what's that about? And I think part of it, I don't understand it completely, but if you wonder that, I think part of it is that if they had eaten from the tree of the life in their sinful state, maybe there's a sense where they would have been cursed to live that way forever. In their sin and not be redeemed. Yet God had bigger plans. He had plans to fix it. So he couldn't allow that to happen. And finally, number seven, it's not just Adam and Eve, it's all of creation. Creation was now subject to brokenness, decay, and ruin. In other words, storms, disasters, unruly pests, and plants. Did you see the news this week, right? There was worry about a hurricane coming on shore. Do you know what that's a result of? Sin. The destruction and devastation it would bring. Earthquakes in Nepal and in South America and all over. Creation is messed up because of our sin. Famine, war, all, listen, all of it. The weeds in your yard are a result of the fall. Because of our sin. In Genesis 3, it's a horrible picture of our sin and of everything that went wrong in the garden. And it brings up everything that's gone wrong that we've done or that's been done to us. Ways we believe the lie. But don't miss God's grace in all of it. In the midst of it. Again, he, he could have left them to wander and be alone in their sin, but he doesn't. He goes looking for them. He goes looking for you. Jesus tells about it in a parable. He says, who among you, if he lost one sheep, wouldn't leave the shepherd? He wouldn't leave the 99 to go after the one. He loves you. He doesn't desire for you to be stuck where you are. The truth is he could have immediately caused Adam and Eve to die, but he doesn't. 
Look at his grace there. He allows them to continue to live. The wages of sin is death. He could have struck them dead right there. And he could strike each of us dead immediately when we sin. There'd be nothing wrong with him doing that. It'd be perfectly just. But in his grace, he delays that. And he allows them and us to live and enjoy life. The truth is, he could have left them alone and isolated in their sin and shame, but he doesn't. He makes clothes for them. Did you see that? He made them clothes. He could have said, you're naked, deal with it. Figure it out. It's your fault. (laughs) You screwed it up. But what's he do? He looks for them and he clothes them. The truth is he could have immediately given up on them, but he doesn't. Instead, he immediately promises a fix. He promises, you'll bruise his heel, but he will crush your head and the Savior will come. And the rest of the story then is moving us forward to learn about who this Savior is. And the plot through the rest of the story is how God will fix this. Notice what I said, how God will fix this. Not you, not me, but Jesus. Your only hope, my only hope is Jesus Christ. And the ending of the story is how God restores everything back to that perfect harmony in the beginning. As we wrap up, two thoughts for you to think about as we wrap up. First, let me share a story. There's a... There's a woman, her name is Tara, and she does not have a good sense of direction. As a matter of fact, she self-described herself as a dip, a directionally impaired person. One evening, she had plans to go to a friend's house for a visit, and she had actually been there many times before, but this time she's starting from a different place, so she plugs plugs the address into her GPS And she gets a call from her friend just as a courtesy to remind her, hey, we're going to get together in an hour, right? Yeah. So she plugs it in, hops in her car, and takes off. Well, the 15 to 20-minute drive an hour later, they're like, what's going on? Where is she? They got a little worried, so they called her back. And when she answered the phone, she was in tears. And they said, Tara, where are you? What's wrong? I just passed a sign that said Kokomo, which was an hour in the wrong direction. She had plugged the direction into her GPS wrong and followed it. And she believed she was going somewhere that she wasn't. And she ended up in an awful place because of the wrong choice she had made in plugging it in. And the the truth is we're faced with choices. And they go like this. If I choose to sin, really, I choose to suffer. When I choose to sin... I choose to suffer. When God says don't, he's saying don't hurt yourself. When mom says don't touch the stove, she means don't burn your hand. When you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. When I choose to sin, I choose to suffer. But the flip is true as well. When I choose to obey Jesus, I choose to obtain joy. When I choose to obey Jesus, I choose to obtain joy. So I have a choice. I can either choose to sin or I can choose to obey. I can choose to suffer or I can choose to obtain joy. 
See, here's how Jesus says it. If you doubt me, Jesus says, as the father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. Just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you. In other words, to keep my commandments so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And some of us, maybe you look at your life and you go, I've made choices that have led to consequences that are really hard. And any of us could tell those stories. But you need to know you also still have a choice. You're still breathing to make new choices. I'll leave you with this story. You ever heard of a guy named Alfred Noble or Nobel, I should say? You ever heard of him? I bet you have and you don't know it. In 1867, Swedish chemist Alfred Nobel invented a new high explosive, which he named dynamite. He was convinced that his invention would make war too horrible to ever happen again. However, he quickly discovered there was no shortage of buyers for his new explosive. He made a huge fortune from its sales, yet he was horrified with the suffering and misery it caused in wars and conflicts. But what was he to do? Well, toward the end of the 19th century, he woke up one morning to read his own obituary in the local paper. How would you feel? You pull up the, you get the paper off the porch and your obituary is written in it. Except here's what his obituary said. Alfred Nobel, the inventor of dynamite who died yesterday, devised a way for more people to be killed in a war than ever before. He died a very rich man. Well, actually, it was Alfred's brother who had died. Not Alfred, but the newspaper reporter confused it. And the account had a profound effect on Alfred. He decided he wanted to be known for something other than developing a means to kill people efficiently and for amassing a fortune in the process. As a result, do you know what he did? He initiated the Nobel Prize with his fortune. An award for scientists and writers who foster peace. And Nobel said every man ought to have the chance to correct his epitaph in midstream and write a new one. And I'll bet you don't know him for the dynamite. You know him for the peace prize. And the truth is, he's right. Because Jesus offers every one of us a chance to rewrite our epitaph midstream. And if you simply turn to him in faith and trust him, he makes you new. And as we'll sing here in a moment, he makes beautiful things out of what we've messed up. And if you've already trusted him, continue to follow him. Continue to allow him to make you new. It's a process. And sometimes we think spiritual growth ought to be like a perfect upward graph. But really, it's like a big spiral. It goes like this. And eventually, Jesus will get you here. But continue to trust him. Let me pray. We'll sing, take our offering, and call it a morning. Father, thank you for Jesus, and thank you for your grace to us through him. Lord, the truth is we all deserve incredible consequence for our sin. And the truth of the matter is that oftentimes we do have to face those consequences. Other times, by your grace, you spare us from them. But in the end, you give us a choice to either allow Jesus to pay the consequence for us, which is ultimately a second death and, under, and, and experiencing your wrath for our sin or 
you allow us to take it, and it's our choice. Give us grace, I pray today, to choose Jesus, to choose your grace. Father, convict us of our sin. Help us repent of it. But then keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And the truth, is the, mat- truth of the matter is that we were sinners, but you see us now in Christ as a saint. You don't see us messed up. You see us like you see Jesus, perfect and pure and lovely. It was granted to us to wear white. So, Father, we love you. I thank you for Jesus. It's all because of him. I can preach and pray and say these things. Amen.